0: Hello and welcome. I'm Sophie Kilvert and today I'm delighted to be joined by Jay Creel and John Dowling from Bears Capital. When we hold funds and portfolios, we look at those that will complement our own investment philosophy, but also we're looking for diversification from what we can do ourselves and also those all important inflation beating returns. We've held Bears Capital since the summer of 2016. They're based in Austin, Texas in the USA, a growing and thriving hub of new technology. Bears run a high conviction portfolio, typically with somewhere between 8 and 12 positions in it, so they get to know the companies they own inside out. Jay, seeing as you are so discerning, how does a company earn its place in your portfolio?
1: Well, Sophie, thank you very much for uh, inviting us. Um, Yes, our our core philosophy is uh, simply that stock returns follow growth in business value over the long term. In other words, the stock market assigns the highest market values to businesses that create the greatest amounts of fundamental intrinsic value over time. So if you're seeking above average stock price returns, uh, you should also be looking for businesses that are compounding intrinsic value at sustainably high rates. Um, And because these types of businesses are relatively rare and often misunderstood by market participants, uh, we have opportunities to buy them at a fraction of their future value. Uh, Stock market history suggests that businesses with the ability to compound intrinsic value at high rates for long periods of time tend to have certain qualitative characteristics. Um, And these characteristics are the focus of our investment research Uh, We group them into three categories. Uh, First, we look for evidence of sustainable competitive advantages. Um, In order for a business to create enduring value in a free market system, it must be able to withstand competitive pressures. Uh, These advantages come in various forms. A few examples would be a scale-based cost advantage, uh, intangible assets like patents or brand names, uh, a growing network effect or high switching costs, but they all contribute to a business's ability to neutralize competitive threats and invest capital at high rates of return. Second, we look for talented and trustworthy management teams. We view our investments as long-term partnerships, and we want to invest with high-integrity people who are skilled business operators and capital allocators. Uh, The management teams that we partner with often include a founder, owner, operator, as this helps to create a long-term orientation to the business. And third, we look for large and underappreciated growth opportunities. This could take the form of a decades-long runway for growth in a large core market, but it could also include expansion into adjacent markets through organic investment and or acquisition activity. Um, Our overall goal is to find highly scalable companies that are likely to become multiples of their current size over the long run. Uh, Beyond these three core areas, we look for other business characteristics that tend to be beneficial for shareholder value creation. Uh, These would include strong balance sheets, mission-critical products and services, various forms of recurring revenue, uh, high incremental margins, and low capital requirements.
0: So, is it a case of you obviously spend a lot of time looking at figures, looking at balance sheets, but is it also a case of getting your boots on the ground and going out and trying to find the companies that are going to that are going to meet the criteria?
1: Yes, absolutely, and that that field work is really a, a hallmark of our investment process. Um, so, once we we find a, an interesting idea, um, we would move that into the office-based portion, and it's everything you might expect. It's Uh, you know, reviewing annual reports, uh, you know, reviewing company transcripts, et cetera. Um, And that forms kind of the basis of uh, an initial opinion on the company. You know, do we see evidence of these qualitative characteristics that we look for? Uh, You know, do we understand how the business makes money, who the competitors are, the industry structure, et cetera? Um, But, yeah, we would then move out into the field, which is where we spend most of our time. Um, it typically starts with a visit to company headquarters, where you know, we sit down with senior management um, and go through kind of strategic questions about the company and the industry. Uh, we attend uh, the major trade shows um, and, uh, and user conferences. Uh, we also do the same with suppliers, customers, uh, competitors. Uh, just to kind of build a more full mosaic um, of information ar- around the company. So, you know, we want to be out there on the front lines where the business is actually getting done, um, and that's where, you know, we think we add the most value. Um, we've been doing this for uh, over 20 years now. i uh, been spending most of our time out in the field traveling across the country uh, to, to add to our, our research files on publicly traded companies in the U.S.
0: It seems that you share a good deal of the good practice and techniques like that with our own investment team who who use very similar. I know that our team try to get to know the companies in which we invest and spend time with them as much as possible. And also working in partnership with you means that they can leverage your expertise, uh, particularly in areas that can be too difficult for for them to cover. I know that's something that they value hugely. And the partnership that's developed is incredibly important to them. Is that a common model for you with your clients?
1: Yes, absolutely. We we learn a a tremendous amount from our, our clients as well. And uh you know we find that we spend most of our time in client discussions you know talking about uh, the investments which uh is our favorite subject after all so it's it's very much a collaborative um, investor to investor discussion
0: if we turn to look at some of the holdings that you have in the portfolio When we look at stock markets over the last few years and particularly at the US, it's been technology companies that have been the biggest driver of growth. And also they've actually been reasonably resilient for the most part in the downturn as well. So whatever acronym you decide to use, whether you call them FANGS or FANGMAN, when you look at the largest technology companies together, they have a bigger market cap than the combined GDP of Germany and Italy. So they're a huge section of the market. But those biggest names, we don't find in your portfolio, do we? You tend to look for something a bit less obvious?
1: Well, we certainly know a lot about those companies. Uh, you know, We've done a lot of work on, on uh, you know really companies across the market cap spectrum, including the, the mega cap technology companies, um, we found from an investment perspective, uh, we found more interesting opportunities among smaller companies, you know, in particular, uh, mid-cap companies within the Russell 1000. And so that's where we've made most of our investments. Um, I think the reasons for that are simply that you know, the largest companies tend to get the most attention uh, from analysts, and they're more likely to be uh, you know, fully valued or efficiently valued in the markets. Um, and ultimately, as I mentioned, we do favor companies that can grow to become multiples of their current size. And so um, that may be true uh, for an Amazon or a Google or a Microsoft, um, but we're more confident of that, again, you know, among the, uh, you know, some of the mid-cap companies where uh, they're, they're not up against the, the law of large numbers, uh, where we have more opportunity to, uh, to gain a variant perception in terms of, of research. Uh, so it's, it's not that we, you know, exclude those from our process. It's just that uh, we found more interesting things to do from an investment perspective among smaller size companies.
0: So taking one of those, for example, can I pick on Wayfair? Merely because its performance over the last few months or so has been quite phenomenal, hasn't it?
1: Yes. Yes, indeed. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's had uh, strong, you know, recent performance. Uh, interestingly, it still trades at the, at the low end of, of the, the e-commerce group in terms of a, a, a price-to-sales multiple. So, uh, you know, we see a lot of, a lot of opportunity ahead. Um, you know, Wayfair is a technology company at, at the core. Um, it's, it's focused on the consumer market. Um, but they've, they've essentially built the world's largest online marketplace for uh, furniture, decor, and other home goods. Uh, The company employs a a purpose-built capital light business model for the sourcing, sale, and and delivery of home products, which is a a massive global category that is in the the very early stages of e-commerce adoption. Um, and I was going to ask John, would you please give the, the listeners an overview of, of Wayfair?
2: Yeah, absolutely happy to. So we've spent a lot of time studying the e-commerce space and, and in doing so really observed that the, the strength of a digital marketplace kind of rests on, on three key things. The first is selection, second, the on-platform experience, uh, and third, logistics capabilities. And in looking at the home goods space, which as Jay mentioned, is where Wayfair has really focused its efforts. Uh, we see a profile that's dramatically different than most categories uh, across those dimensions. Uh, so starting with selection, you know, home furnishings are, are really an expression of someone's individual style, uh, which makes selection you know, unusually important. Most people don't wanna have the same couch as their neighbor or friend, uh, rather they wanna have something that reflects their personal taste. Uh, in terms of the shopping experience, consumers typically start their buying process uh, without a clear idea of what they want. Uh, they may know that they like the modern farmhouse style for example uh, but they don't necessarily have a brand or model in mind so you really need a marketplace that allows for this browsing based uh, as opposed to search based shopping pattern uh, and the required logistics efforts are, are different from other categories because you're shipping bulky and, and inherently damage prone products and that has implications for everything from how you warehouse the products to how you manage the the so-called last mile delivery uh, it's not just about dropping something off on a, a customer's doorstep. Uh, it's about coordinating the delivery and handling the in-home setup piece. And so what Wayfair has done, uh, as Jay referred to, you know, as a, a pure play provider, uh, is really solve for all these characteristics via the development of a purpose-built platform. Uh, so they spent more than a decade building up a base of, of 18 million distinct items sourced from over 12,000 suppliers. Uh, they've created a world-class on-site browsing experience with comprehensive descriptions. Uh, clean imagery and lots of peer reviews, Uh, and they've developed a proprietary logistics network that is designed with with home furnishings uh, in mind. Uh, And the results of this focused efforts, uh, these focused efforts have really been pretty powerful. Um, So the company's built a very loyal customer base. Uh, More than half of orders now come from shoppers who have bought uh, on the site three times or more. And it's really helped set a virtuous cycle in motion where higher volumes attract more suppliers to the marketplace and gives the company the ability to invest further in the platform, uh, which then makes Wayfair more attractive to consumers. So it's a a very powerful formula that makes it uh, uh, incredibly difficult for anyone else to catch up to to Wayfair's lead. Uh, In terms of growth, you know, less than 15% of home goods purchases occur online today, so the shift to e-commerce is really in its, its very early stages. Uh, And we know that these digital marketplaces tend to skew towards winner-takes-most type outcomes. So we see a big runway ahead uh, as Wayfair looks to capture uh, a disproportionate share of of what we estimate to be a a $600 billion mark. Final point here as it relates to the strength of management. uh, Wayfair benefits from what we refer to as founder-owner-operator dynamics. Uh, Neeraj Shaw, Steve Conine, the co-founders, is still on about 30% of the company and still lead it to this day we've had an opportunity to talk to them on multiple occasions and, and really have a high degree of conviction uh, in their ability to, to execute on the opportunity at hand.
0: And obviously, their share price performance is probably driven by the fact that we're, people are at home a lot more and have been and have Tinkering with things around the house that they might not have done if they were at work all day. So there is obviously opportunity there for Wayfair. But what would you say are the main threats to their business at the moment?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you know, with the pandemic, we've seen a couple of things happen. Uh, you know, the priority uh, home goods have have moved up on the prioritization scale, uh, as you referred to. You've got you know fewer available outlets for discretionary shopping. Uh, home has really taken center stage in, in so many people's lives today, and that's been a huge boon for them. Um, We we do think that this will have enduring effects, that uh, customers will have uh, a great experience as they flock to the site and and keep coming back to buy more and more. We continue to follow the the competitive landscape. Amazon is a player in the space and has obviously made uh, some efforts here. But we really think that this is a space that is is well suited to a pure play approach and think that Wayfair's position is, is very defensible.
0: Wayfair obviously very much focused on the consumer and that maybe is where people think Uh, the big technology companies, or maybe there's money to be made in technology companies. But it's not all about that consumer-facing part of the business, is it? There's also a lot of technology companies that are kind of behind the scenes, that aren't those names that people would know about. Um, Workday is one that you have in the portfolio. Can you tell us a little bit about what they are? Because I think people might not be so familiar with that name.
1: So Workday is an enterprise software provider uh, delivering modern ERP applications primarily to, to large and, and mid-sized companies, um, they've got a, an exceptional founder-owner-operator team at the helm, um, and our research indicates that that Workday is displacing uh, traditional software incumbents and emerging as as a leader in the in the generational shift to cloud computing.
2: Yeah. So the ERP space in which Workday competes, you know, pretty obviously an attractive industry, and and you can look at the results of Oracle and SAP, as as Jay referred to, and and pretty quickly discern that. Uh, just so many favorable attributes here. So it's, you know, consistent with the broader enterprise software realm. You have this dynamic where you can build the product once and sell it over and over again uh, with very little incremental costs associated with that, and that allows for very rich margins. Uh, The software itself serves as a a central nervous system of sorts for customers, you know, connecting with hundreds of of upstream and downstream systems. And so there's incredible customer captivity that that comes with that. Uh, And it's a massive space. So Oracle and SAP collectively generate uh, almost $70 billion in in annual revenue, which is a a huge sum, especially at at this margin profile. Um, The challenge for potential entrants here, you know, given how attractive the space is, is really finding a way to, to break in. And what our work in the field has really shown is that a few things are required. Uh, For one, you have to go to the painstaking and and expensive process of of building out all the functionality that a Siemens or a Walmart or a Samsung, all of which are our Workday customers, by the way, uh, that they require. Um, For another, you have to figure out a way to convince the first few customers to take a chance on uh, what is then still kind of an unproven piece of software. Uh, and finally, you have to time it just right. You have to hit uh, at a point when there's a, a change in the underlying technology structure that allows you to develop something meaningfully better, because it, it truly has to be meaningfully better to convince customers to, uh, to take on the switching costs that are, that are present there. And so in a nutshell, that's really kind of the, the story of Workday. Uh, in 2005, Dave Duffield and Neil Boosry, who were the two founders, uh, they had just kind of reluctantly left PeopleSoft, uh, which was also an ERP provider, after they got bought out in a, a hostile acquisition by Oracle for $10 billion. And so left them with a lot of money in their pockets and, and frankly, a big chip on their shoulder to, to go back and, and take on Oracle again. And all of that was happening at a time when there was a, a rise in a uh, you know, new architecture, a cloud-based multi-tenant architecture uh, that, that made it possible to deliver a solution that offered a lot of advantages relative to the client-server model that uh, you know, had been in place at the time. And so they started building a new company that leveraged this technology. And, and early on, they leaned on all those relationships back from the, the PeopleSoft days to, to land the first few customers. Uh, and then used a very powerful kind of reference-based selling model uh, with high customer satisfaction from there. So uh, if you fast forward to today, you know, Workday has really become the default provider, uh, default provider of, of human capital management software, which is a, a key component in this space. Uh, They've got nearly 50% of the Fortune 500, uh, and they're working to to, replicate that uh, both internationally and with financial management, uh, which is another piece. And and this is kind of perhaps the most important point, which is that once you get a customer uh, to buy HCM, to buy financial management, that really serves as a beachhead uh, that you can use to sell a broad array of of complementary modules uh, into the organization. So you can sell things for budgeting, for workforce planning, for payroll, uh, and the list goes on and on. And, and that's really where a lot of the revenue potential lies. Uh, so we see a clear pathway to, to workday becoming multiple times its size uh, and again benefiting you know, not only from this you know, inherently attractive business model uh, but also the encore performance story from a management perspective. You got these two founders that still own about a quarter of a company. So we think it's a an archetypal holding for us and, and one that has the potential to power the portfolio's results for many years to come.
0: Interestingly, you don't tend to make that decision between the idea of, of growth and value and those two companies obviously many people would would say they were very much growth companies. but you're ra- mainly looking for companies that you feel are perhaps, misunderstood or there's there's a pricing point that hasn't quite been right at some point for them. Now, I know that Align Technologies, you would say, is one of those. Can you tell us a little bit about how they came to be an investment in the portfolio?
1: Sure. Align Technology um, is uh, is really the dominant global provider of, of modern orthodontic treatment systems, uh, most notably uh, clear tooth aligners that are increasingly used as an alternative to traditional wires and brackets. Um, so, you know, whether you ask uh, patients or or doctors, uh, the company's Invisalign brand is really synonymous with next generation orthodontics, and uh, we view the company as a, a major beneficiary of the long term trend to a new standard of care. Um, Align is a great example for us of uh, what we call a, a graduate, um, and that's a, a company that uh, we approved for our small cap strategy you know, many years ago. Uh, we owned it over a decade ago in small cap, and the company's executed well and, and grown to become a, a mid cap company. So you know, this is a company that we've been following for, for quite some time. Um, we had an interesting opportunity in, in the market uh, to to take a position in the mid-large cap strategy.
2: Yeah, so so over the course of following it for for more than a decade, you know we've uh, had an opportunity to uh, attend a handful of dental conferences, you know participate in, in dental training seminars, you know uh, examples of uh, our field work there. And what we found through that is that, you know, clear aligners offer a lot of meaningful advantages uh, you know, relative to the, the wires and brackets that they're displacing. So obviously, that they, they look better, uh, which is something that both adults and teens really care about. Uh, I still remember wearing braces for four years as a kid and experiencing some anxiety as I was walking into my intermediate school classroom with them for the first time. Um, So so a big advantage there. Uh, They're also much more comfortable. You don't have a series of metal brackets and wires that cut your lips, get food stuck in them, and and make it difficult to brush or floss. Uh, So a lot of meaningful benefits, but what had really been holding the company back uh, were limitations on the types of treatments that Invisalign could handle from an efficacy standpoint. Uh, Early on, it was really focused on mild to moderate cases, and that had prevented orthodontists from, from really building their practice around the solution. So what's, what's changed since then, and, and perhaps not surprisingly, is that the technology has really advanced at, at a rapid rate. Um, you know, the, the company has invested aggressively here. You rolled out a, a string of improvements across both the aligners themselves and the software that, that powers it all. And so now you're at a place where Invisalign can not only address more complex cases, but uh, uh, in many instances it can do so faster and, and with greater predictability than, than wires and brackets. And that comes as, you know, the software is able to optimize you know, the movement of each of these uh, teeth where uh, you know the traditional method is, is still really a craft where doctors have to use their judgment uh, as they attempt to work through the, the, the problem. Uh, so with the advancements, you know orthodontists can really focus their efforts on invisalign and we're seeing this happen more and more often and, and that the market is moving in that direction. Uh, and you do get this positive reinforcement effect where, you know, if if your child has a friend who's had a positive experience with Invisalign, you're much more likely to want it for your child uh, as well. Um, And and so we see this occurring, and with aligners still accounting for only about 15% of traditional braces starts, uh, a big opportunity for the company to continue posting high growth rates uh, for many years to come. So that's kind of the long-term view. Uh, You know, as it relates to this opportunity, we established an initial position back in the third quarter of last year Uh, What had happened is that some of the company's initial patents had expired, which allowed uh, some copycats to emerge. And that really created this narrative among investors that the space was getting commoditized. Uh, And the share price dropped about 40% uh, as a result of that. Um, But we really saw a compelling opportunity there and and decided to jump in, you know, leaning on our our past research, which really told us that these new entrants faced a very long road as they attempted to match uh, what Align had done. Uh, There's a lot of risk aversion in the space, which we knew would limit their traction earlier on. Uh, And we also knew how sticky the product was uh, from a dental professional standpoint. So it's not just a piece of plastic that Align is providing, and that's kind of the the critical insight to us. Uh, You know, it's a a series of sophisticated medical devices uh, that even more importantly are are part of a digital ecosystem uh, that includes that software, that includes a scanner, all of which are proprietary to Align. So we felt confident that despite, uh, you know, kind of these shifts in the landscape, uh, that Invisalign remained poised to to capture the lion's share of the opportunity, and, and since then the company's results have have really proved that out, and, and you see the share price responding accordingly.
0: Now, I don't think we can have this conversation without sort of some reference to the fact that we're we're maybe not in a in a normal sort of environment, and we have, um still are feeling the effects of the the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, are there any lasting changes that you see? Uh, Even that that will affect the companies in the portfolio. Even once we start to to come out of lockdown.
1: Well, certainly, you know, COVID-19 is a a great example of uh, of a black swan event. Uh, You know, these are unpredictable in their their timing and impact, uh, but they are recurrent throughout history. Uh, Certainly, the timing and pace of of economic recovery is is uncertain, in our view. in the meantime, you know, the portfolio is inherently well-positioned to withstand exogenous shocks. Uh, we own cash-generative, capital light companies with strong balance sheets. Uh, well over 80% of the portfolio is invested in you know, what we would consider to be mission-critical businesses uh, such as enterprise software. Um, and ultimately, the, the qualitative characteristics uh, like strong competitive advantages uh, we believe add to the resilience of our of our companies. Um, what changed in in our favor, uh, particularly in during March and April, is that you know the market price to intrinsic value relationships moved decidedly in our favor. So as value oriented investors, we welcome opportunities to increase our ownership at more attractive prices. Uh, we were very active buyers around the mid March lows when uh, prices reflected unjustifiably severe business outcomes. Um, so you know, despite the uncertainty and the turmoil, um, we've actually been able to uh, you know, increase our commitment to some of these long-term investments and we don't see really any change to uh, the long-term uh, investment outlook for our companies. Uh, so we are managing portfolio risk as uh, economic activity moves outside the normal range. Uh, you know, balance sheets continue to be a focus, you know, again, we, we generally do not invest in companies with high leverage, so our, our capital structures are in good shape. Um, on the earnings front, you know, we see near-term earnings uh, declining. Uh, but importantly, that's not the same as a permanent loss of earnings power. Um, in fact, uh, to the contrary, uh, we're seeing uh, advantaged companies in this market, you know, take market share. Uh, during the recession as, as competitors uh, falter. So, you know, whether you look at a, a CoStar group where you've got, you know, kind of network-based aggregation of, of apartment and commercial real estate listings, uh, whether you look at Alterix, Gartner, Pegasystems, and Workday, uh, where you're seeing, you know, modernization of, of corporate IT infrastructure, uh, Square, where you've got a, a secular shift of... of uh, uh, small and mid-sized business payment processing cl- solutions and P2P payments moving to low-cost next-generation providers, um, or a wayfair, which which is experiencing an accelerated transition of home goods purchasing from offline to online. Uh, we've actually been uh, pleasantly surprised in in several cases uh, to see the the commercial progress of our holdings uh, accelerate. So. Uh, but we haven't we haven't uh, made any major changes to the the portfolio. It's it's primarily been uh, just taking advantage of a, a more favorable price environment when it comes to our our securities purchases.
0: So obviously, still some uncertainty about the future, but very comfortable with what you're holding at the moment. But is there? What is it in the portfolio at the moment that that excites you most, or what are you most looking forward to possibly for the rest of the year? What what do you see that that might happen that that could really turbocharge the portfolios?
1: We continue to be excited about the ongoing modernization of of corporate technology systems. Uh, We view this as a a long-term secular trend that will create a, a new group of market leaders and We're investing in situations where next-generation providers are displacing incumbents or even creating brand-new markets. Uh, Examples in the the current portfolio include Alterix in business data analytics, uh, Pegasystems in CRM software, Square in payment processing, and of course Workday in HCM and corporate accounting software. Uh, All of these businesses are reporting significant increases in customer interest As companies of all sizes adapt to the changing environment um, and consider more modern technology solutions, um, we believe all of them are attractively valued uh, considering their competitive positioning and growth potential.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. It's been great to get under the bonnet and understand your approach and the investments within the fund in more detail. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, John. Thanks, Jay.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
0: Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation, or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund, or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.